All right. Good morning. They said I can start whenever I want, so I guess now's the time. They also said I can quit when I want, so I don't know if that's good or bad. But this this quarter, appreciate everybody being in the class. We're going to be studying in the auditorium class the book of First Corinthians. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We'll start there in a moment. But I just want to start by saying when you think about the book of First Corinthians, what comes to mind when you think about the book of First Corinthians? What do you typically think of? Somebody said problems, and that would be correct. Yes, yeah, so the church at Corinth had problems, and people typically think of the churches of Corinth as a problematic church. However, part of our view of the church is problematic in 1 Corinthians, maybe because we're not as acquainted with 2 Corinthians as we are with 1 Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians 16 chapters, Paul lays out problem after problem that the church is having. But by the time you get to 2 Corinthians, many of those problems are cleared up. They, they've got new problems, but they have their act together. And so 1 Corinthians is a church of problems. Here are some of them. In chapters 1 through 4, they have a problem of what you might call preacher-itis. And so I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. They've got their favorite preacher. In chapter 5, there's the issue of sexual immorality. A man is sleeping with his stepmother, and not only that, but Paul says the congregation is just tolerating it. They don't have a problem about it at all. In chapter 6, they're taking each other to court and suing each other over what Paul thinks are pretty small or minor matters. In chapter 7, Paul begins with these, with this phrase, this statement will appear several times throughout the book of 1 Corinthians after chapter 7. Now concerning this or that. So after chapter 6, Paul starts dealing with some issues that the Corinthians had written to him about and he answers them. Chapter 7, there's the issue of marriage. Who can be married? What should you do if you're married to a non-Christian? What should you do if you're a widow? In chapters 8 through 10, he deals with meat that's been sacrificed to idols and whether the Christians can partake of it or not. Chapter 11, there's the problem of the Lord's Supper. In chapters 12 through 14, spiritual gifts. And so the Corinthian church, as we'll see in a moment when we go through chapter 1, we're blessed with an enormous amount of spiritual gifts. But in chapters 12, 13, and 14, there's this discussion about which gifts are better, tongues or prophecy. And what if I don't have the gift that you have? What if I'm not a public speaker? Do I still matter in the church? And in between that, Paul talks about the importance of love in chapter 13. Chapter 15, there's the issue of the resurrection. Will we be resurrected? And what about people that have died before? Have they just missed out? And by the way, Paul, when we're resurrected, what kind of bodies will we have? Will it be the same one or will it be different? And Paul takes 58 verses to say there will be a resurrection body. It will be glorious. And that should affect the way that we live now. And then in chapter 16, he briefly mentions the collection in verses 1 through 2 and closes out with some matters about who he's sending to them and what he wants them to do in his absence. So, yes, the book of 1 Corinthians is a book filled with problems, but it's also a book filled with solutions as Paul takes the problems and he gives the various solutions that they can have. What I want to do this morning, hopefully, is to... Talk a little bit. I don't want to waste a lot of time on this, but talk a little bit about the background to ancient Corinth and and show you a little bit as we go through. I don't want to make this a born history class. I know how much everybody loves history, but I do want to show you some of the background of ancient Corinth and then show you why a little knowledge about that helps us to understand some of the things that Paul says in first Corinthians, how the Corinthian church was begun in chapter 18 of the book of Acts and then. Hopefully, if we have some time remaining, begin in First Corinthians chapter one today. So the background of the book of First Corinthians. So the town of Corinth, 
there's a Corinth part one and part two. The city was destroyed early on and then it was rebuilt in about 46 B.C. at the direction of Julius Caesar. The city had been overrun by invaders in 2000 B.C. and was destroyed by Roman invaders in 146. But in 46, Julius Caesar had the city rebuilt. Um, Latin was the established language of the city. Many of the names that we associate with the city of Corinth are Latin in origin. You think about Priscilla and Aquila, Sosthenes in chapter one and others. Greek was the common common language that was spoken by the people. And the fact that there was a synagogue in Corinth that Paul goes to in Acts 18 says something about there being a heavy or at least decent Jewish population there. So when Paul went to Corinth in Acts 18 and verse 4, there was a synagogue. Though this is probably a predominantly Gentile church, there was a synagogue there. There was a Jewish presence. At the time of Paul's writings, commentators estimate that there were about 500,000 or 700,000 people. So... Bowling Green is a population of about how many would you say? Yeah, Google says 74,000. I just want to make sure. So that would be Corinth was about eight Bowling Greens. It was that big. So it'd be like unto a modern day Miami, Sacramento or Atlanta, something like that. That's how big the city of Corinth was and what you could expect. Now, the culture in Corinth, it had a rich culture. It was known for various arts, pottery. It was also known for its Corinthian brass. They prided themselves on adorning their city with temples and artistic embellishments. They also had a love for knowledge in Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and here's some of where this comes into play. The city of Corinth, they had a love for knowledge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, though, in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the I came proclaiming to you the testimony of God, but not with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul speaking to these people who are just in love with knowledge. And he says, the one thing that I had in mind when I came to Corinth was what? The good news about Jesus. Paul wanted to preach to them about Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were also known for what's known as the Isthmian Games. And so the Olympic Games were popular at this time, but the games that were held in Corinth was they were equally popular. They were a national um, festival in Corinth and they were hosted every two years. Many people that went to these Isthmian games trained months ahead for these games, and it provided a source of profit to the vendors and the entertainers in Corinth. So if you're in Corinth, this big place that's like in Atlanta or Miami or Sacramento, you know about the games that's, that are going to take place, the athletic competition. So go to 1 Corinthians 9 and see how this helps us to understand some of what Paul uses. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24... You've seen the Isthmian games every two years in your city. And then Paul's writing to you now that you're a Christian. And look at the illustration that he uses. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one that beats the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself will be disqualified. Now, if you're a Christian in the church at Corinth, you've seen individuals that are preparing for athletic competition, prepare their bodies for boxing matches and for races over and over again. But then you receive this letter from the Apostle Paul and he's saying, hey, the same vigor that they use for that competition every two years that you pay money to go and see and maybe even profit from as a vendor. You use that same vigor, you use that same energy, that same training. In your walk and in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you bring your body under the same discipline 
That would make sense to people who see these games played out every year. This is probably the last thing on the background of Corinth. The morals and the religion. So there's really no doubt concerning the immorality that graced ancient Corinth. Many people liken the ancient city of Corinth in New Testament times to the Sodom and Gomorrah of the Old Testament in Genesis 19. Corinth was so wicked that in the first century world, this term that was called to Corinthianize. If you were said to Corinthianize, that meant that you were a fornicator. You were a sexual immoral person. That's how wicked they were. They developed the nickname for individuals being described as immoral or sexually promiscuous. All right. And so when Corinth was restored, many of the ancient gods were restored. They had a lot of different gods, practiced a lot of idolatry. Look at First Corinthians eight in a town surrounded by idols. They had about 27 different local deities that they served. But in first first Corinthians eight, five and six, Paul says, although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on the earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, lowercase g, lowercase l, yet. To us, there is one God, the father of whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So in a town where all of these things are taking place and in a town where there are 27 different local deities, Paul says, if you're a Christian, though, you know, there are how many gods really? There's only one God. And so the Corinthians would stand out from their contemporaries. And Paul was driving home this one reality. Money was freely spent on pleasure in ancient Corinth. But Paul wrote the most about giving in the New Testament to this congregation. One of the verses that we often cite for our giving and the need to give on the first day of the week is 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, you do also on the first day of the week. Let every one of you lay something aside as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, there are two chapters which Paul just goes in depth about why Christians give, how we're to give, and what's the purpose of our giving. But he wrote these things to a culture, to a congregation of people that were surrounded by a culture of affluence and where people would not give money away usually for charitable causes. They were in a society where you use your funds for yourself and for nobody else. But Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, hey... They're brethren in need and you march to the beat of a different drum. Now that you're a Christian, you be a person of benevolence. You be a person that gives. Now, with this background of the city and the ancient culture in mind and the mixed cultural influence, we're ready to study the book of First Corinthians. But before we go to First Corinthians, we have to see how this church came about. Go to Acts 18 and we'll start our study on the beginning of the Corinthian church. Acts 18 and really the first 17 verses tell us about how this church was established and what took place. And I'll I'll read about through verse number through verse number eight. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so Paul in Acts 18 is coming off of what some believe to be his most depressing outing to date. In Acts 17, when he goes to Athens and he preaches on Mars Hill to the Areopagus about the gods that they serve, and he's going to tell them about the unknown God. Typically in the book of Acts, what we find is Paul goes in and preaches to a group of people, and there's a great response. There are thousands of people that obey the gospel. In Acts 17, though, in Athens, that's not the response that Paul gets. In verse 34 of Acts 17, there are a few notable women and some that obey the gospel, but not a great amount of people. Paul goes on from there to Corinth, and when he gets there, you can imagine the immorality and the wickedness that he sees taking place there. But he finds a place to preach the gospel. Now, who does Paul meet in Acts 18? What couple does he meet? Acts 18, verses 2 and 3. Priscilla and Aquila. That's right. And what does Paul have in common with them? They were tent makers. We don't know if they were Christians when Paul met them or if Paul was instrumental in their conversion. But here's what we do know. They would become lifelong friends of Paul. At the end of first Corinthians in chapter 16, he mentions them. The Corinthian church would know this couple. They worked hard together. But then Paul's Efforts change. Notice Acts 18 and verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And so when Timothy and Silas come from Macedonia, the church at Philippi, do you know what they have with them to give to Paul? They have a financial contribution. The Philippian church supported Paul's work. And so once they get there with the money, it seems that Paul no longer has to work with his hands and doing this tent making stuff. Now he's occupied with the word. And we find out that Paul stays for 18 months in this one place. The only other place that he stayed longer was in Ephesus when he was there for three years. But he stays for 18 months with the church in Corinth. Now he's fully supported as the Macedonians have given this financial contribution. And he's able to dedicate himself full time to the preaching and the teaching of the word. How is Paul received in Corinth? How would you say he was received? Was it good or bad? Yeah, they shook out their clothes. What does that mean? Why would Paul shake out his clothes? What is that all about? Yep. Yeah, people didn't want to listen. Jesus had taught his disciples this. Paul wasn't one of the 12, but I'm sure he received this information later on. But in Mark 6 and in Matthew 10, when Jesus sent the apostles out on what we know as the limited commission, he said, go into a house and preach to them. And if they receive you, great. But if they won't, you shake off the dust from your feet. Or in this case, Paul shakes out his clothing. You just go on preaching from there. When you shake out your clothing or shake off the dust from your feet, what was Paul saying in that moment? What were the apostles saying when they did that? We're done. We've done what we could do. I think that's helpful because sometimes in evangelism, we can be too hard on ourselves, right? Well, why won't these people obey? Maybe we should have done more. We could have done more. We need to do our part. But there does come a time when we say, if these individuals don't want the gospel, then we should shake the dust off our feet and keep going for a lot of reasons. One, because you can't force anybody to become a Christian. But two, as long as you continue to be engaged with somebody who's not interested, you're missing out on all of the people that really are. So Paul shook out his clothes. But look at Acts 18 and verse 8. There were some people that obeyed, right? Crispus, his entire household, and then Luke writes, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so Paul was able to preach the gospel, and many people believed, and he focused his attention on those that were receptive. Let's read the rest of 
down to verse 17. Let's start in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo, who was proconsul of Achaia of the Jews, made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. And so Paul's preaching and teaching. And then, as is customary throughout the book of Acts, the Jews that had enough, they bring him before the authorities and they say he's teaching a different God. They beat Paul and company and The Romans, they had one law, and it's called Pax Romana, which meant the peace of Rome. And what Roman officials wanted to do, and with this in mind, it'll help you to see what's going on throughout the book of Acts. The individuals that were in charge in different provinces throughout the Roman Empire had really one job from Caesar. Keep Rome peaceful. No uprising, no wars, and no riots. And so throughout the book of Acts, when Paul and others are brought before these individuals, many times what the Roman officials want to do is just keep the peace. Please don't have any uprising. Hey, take them outside and beat them or you owe, but we really want to keep the peace because if they don't, they could lose their position and Caesar's going to be upset with them. So that explains this often nonchalant attitude on the part of the Roman officials throughout the book of Acts as Paul and others are beaten and the Jews are saying one thing and Paul saying another and men like Felix and Festus and in this case Galileo, they just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, that's your problem. It's got nothing to do with the Romans. And so Paul goes on from there. Later, Apollos comes and he preaches and spends some time in Corinth. And that's pretty much the beginning of the Corinthian church. And so now let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let's begin our march through the book of 1 Corinthians. As we already have mentioned, no one knows the date for certain, but we believe Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around 55 through 57 A.D. It seems that he's received some information from the household of someone named Chloe. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So someone has bought brought Paul a report about some things going on at the church at Corinth, and that's the occasion of his writing, as well as the issues they wrote to him about, to which he'll respond over and over again, now concerning this, concerning that, here's my response. And so what I want to do is walk through the book of 1 Corinthians and really assign one major theme to each chapter. I think if you can do that in Bible study, if you can say about this, it'll help you as you go through. Chapter 1 Corinthians is about this, chapter 2 is about that. So for 1 Corinthians, I would say that the major theme of 1 Corinthians is the calling of the Corinthians. The calling of the Corinthians. Notice how many times the word called or calling appears in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. You might underline these every time you see called or calling. Paul saying, hey, here's the major point. Paul's called to be an apostle. Look at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Drop down to verse eight He's, or verse nine. Excuse me. God is faithful by whom you were what? 
called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There it is again. Drop down to verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then the last one is in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, for not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So over and over again, Paul starts out. I'm an apostle. I've been called. You are Christians. You've been called. And that should make a difference. Before we see the Corinthians as a problem church that needed to be fixed, they were called church. God loved and appreciated. And what Paul's arguing throughout these 16 chapters, even in the midst of the immorality and the suing each other in court and all of their problems about who's their favorite preacher. Paul starts out with the most important idea. Guys, you've all been called by Jesus Christ. Live the right way. Be unified. Be the right people. I'm getting a bad report about you. I'm disappointed. You've been called like I've been called to the apostleship. Live the right way. And that's his point. And so let's go through the text together. I'll read the first three verses and then we'll sort of break things down and have some questions and hopefully some interaction as we go through. If there are any questions as we go through the text, feel free to raise your hand or just speak up. I think next week I'm going to have to get a new mic. This one keeps going in and out. Are you all hearing that? Well, we'll just make it work, right? Okay. let's read First Corinthians one, one through three. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. We read about him in Acts 18. You remember him? They beat Sosthenes at the synagogue there. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So Paul's called by the will of God to be an apostle. How does Paul become an apostle? What does he mean he was called by God? How does this happen for Paul? On the road to Damascus, right? Paul has this supernatural experience where Jesus appears to him, speaks to him, and then he goes and Ananias preaches the gospel to him, and he's baptized for the forgiveness of his sins, Acts twenty-two sixteen. But Paul's called to the apostleship. And so we understand that to be an apostle, you had to be hand selected by Jesus Christ himself. But Paul doesn't just say that about himself. Paul could say, I've been called to the apostleship. But then in verse two, he says the same thing about the Corinthians, doesn't he? Now, he says that the church of God that is in Corinth to those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus are called to be saints together. So here's the question for us. We know how the apostles are called hand selected by Jesus to be the men that they were. Even Matthias next one is selected as they cast lots. Peter prays. The Lord makes known who who's going to be the next apostle. And then Paul in Acts nine. That's pretty simple to get to be an apostle hand selected by Jesus. But what does it mean for Christians to be called the Corinthians and then us today? Are we called in the same way that Corinthians were called in the first century? What does it mean to be called and how does God do it? The gospel calls us. That's right. How does the gospel call individuals? Through the word, through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. Right. So the gospel is calling out to everybody that hears it. And those that respond to it, we could say we've responded to the gospel call. Look at Second Thessalonians two on this. And maybe you make a note in First Corinthians one, two, to go to Second Thessalonians when you're reading this about the calling. But in Second Thessalonians, chapter two and verse 14, what Phil mentioned about the calling through the gospel. This is where it comes from. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.14, to this he called you through our gospel. 
that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God calls people through the gospel. Sometimes when people hear that I'm a preacher, they'll say, oh, you've received your calling. As if God called me up directly on the phone or sent me a text, you know, go preach the gospel. But God doesn't call people like that. But he does call us through the gospel. And guess what? It does mean something. And that's what Paul's appealing to. You're called by the gospel to the church of God in Corinth. You've been called out from the world. That's the difference. In this big city of over 500,000 people, Paul writes to them and he says, hey, God's taken you out because you've obeyed the gospel. He's taken you out and put you over here and you're called to be different people. The church, ecclesia, it's the assembly. It's those individuals that have been called out. And in the midst of a Corinthian culture with ungodliness and the various gods that they worship, Paul is saying, you all are to be different people. And you think that means something for us in, in the 21st century? We're still called the same way by the gospel. We're to be set apart, though. We're to be different because of this call. We're to be different because we belong to God's kingdom, to his church. Paul calls them here the church of God that is at Corinth. And then he says that they are called to be saints. What is a saint? Well, what does the religious world often think about when they think about a saint? What is a saint? What is that? Yeah, you're dead. Yep, that's right. Yeah. You've got to be dead to be a saint. What else do people think about when they hear saints? I'll just take this one. The New Orleans Saints, the football team, maybe them. Yeah. What else, though, religiously do people think about? Pure. Yep. The best of the best. Yeah, you're in this special category. People that practice this religiously, they talk about sainthood. And you had to suffer and go through various things. And it takes a while for you to reach sainthood. But Paul writes to these Christians here and he says, hey, the Corinthians are the church of God. And if you're in God's church, if you're a part of God's kingdom, you are also a saint. This means holy ones. And it's probably better translated that way to the holy ones at Corinth. That's who they are. And so if you obey the gospel, if you're a Christian, that's who you are. Why would Paul start this letter filled with problems this way? Why do you think Paul would start this way? He doesn't start out with the bad news. Hey, Chloe came and reported to me. Get away from that guy who's practicing sexual immorality. Stop taking each other to court. You marry you. You can't be married. Forget about the meat sacrifice to idols. Why does Paul start this way? I think if we can get the answer to this question, it'll help us as we think about how we're to solve problems, how we're to reach out to people that sometimes we may need to correct. Why does Paul start with the good? As he says, you're called to be saints. You're the church of God at Corinth. And then he slowly breaks his way into the issues that the church is facing. What's the purpose of doing that? He's reminding them of who they are and whose they are. That's right. What else? The grace of God. Yeah, the just what it does for the church. Remember this. When people obey the gospel. They're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. They're repenting of their sin. They're changed, right? You obey the gospel, you're changed. You're done with sin. But sin's not through with you. Right. And people bring their problems and they bring their baggage and they bring their family history and they bring their shortcomings. You brought yours. I brought mine. We try to change. We want to walk in the light, but we still are people. And so before Paul gets to the issues that they're facing, he wants to start out with who they are, whose they are, and remind them, listen, Corinthians, you are not problems. You're better than that. You've been called. You're Christians. You're saints. You're different. You're in God's family. He starts out with a positive first. Paul often, you could break down many of Paul's letters this way. You could call it the sandwich method. 
Paul begins with praise. He says, hey, sanctified, all spiritual blessings. I love you. I'm always praying for you. The middle of Paul's letters is where he really deals with the issues. And he normally ends by saying something like, and I know you're going to take care of business. I can't wait to see you. What if we dealt with problems like that? We approach people with the good first. This isn't flattery. Paul is being sincere. But Paul is starting with the positive. He's starting with a common ground. We're called to be saints. We're all on the same team. Don't be divided. And then he spends 14 chapters dealing with their issues. And then he comes up and closes it up by saying, I know you all can do it. I'm proud of you, Corinthians. Hold fast to the gospel. It's a good pattern for how to get things accomplished and why Paul often received a favorable response. Today, you know how we sometimes solve problems. We just start out right away and we just tell people where they're wrong. We start out right away with the areas on which we disagree with individuals. But Paul wanted to build this area of common ground. And it was about the grace of God for Paul. And that's what he mentions there at the end of verse three. Grace to you and peace from God, the father and from our Lord Jesus Christ In Christ. They were saints. And that made the difference. Paul was a spokesman and he was an apostle with divine authority and he wanted to remind them of this reality. Paul was glad that they were converted. He was excited for their transformation, but they weren't living like they should. And so he had to remind them. Let's read verses four down through verse nine. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Paul says he gives thanks for them. Paul says this about a lot of churches. What does he say in verse four? How often does he give thanks for them? Always, right? You may think about it this way. If I was the Apostle Paul, this church is probably his biggest headache, right? Why would he be giving thanks for them continually? But Paul says this about more than just the church at Corinth. I think we've got time. Let's just look at a few of these. Go to the book of Ephesians. He will. Yeah, that's right. He will confirm you to the end. Look at Ephesians 1. I'll show you Paul's pattern for the churches that he was instrumental in establishing and serving. Look at Ephesians 1.16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. You see that? How often did Paul pray for the churches in Ephesus? According to Ephesians 1:16, how often did he pray for him? All the time. Look at Philippians chapter one. Philippians one. Notice verses three and four. In Philippians one, and we can appreciate this, he loved the church at Philippi. He loved all these churches, though, these congregations. Philippians one and verse, thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always and every prayer of mine for you all, making my request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So how often did he pray for the Philippians? Always. Go to Colossians chapter one. Here's the last one we'll do. He does it for the Thessalonians, too, but we'll just skip them for time's sake. Colossians one and notice verse three. How often does he thank God for the Colossians? We all you can probably figure that out now, right? We always thank God, our father, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. when we pray for you. Here are the options we have based on what Paul tells us. Either Paul had a ready recollection of all of these churches and some sort of photographic memory, which he might have had, and he's inspired of God. Or Paul kept some kind of 
prayer list, some kind of reminder to say, pray for the Colossians. He did it in Romans chapter 1 and verse 9 for the Romans. We, we're going backwards, so we skipped them, but we did it for the Romans. Pray for the church at Corinth. Pray for the church at Colossae. Pray for the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 4. Remember, Paul prayed for all of these churches because he cared about them. In our prayers, we should be always praying for Lehman Avenue. Always. Often going to God. But not only here, but just for the church at large. Churches that are facing maybe severe persecution or financial turmoil or different things. But this also lets us into Paul's mindset. Before Paul will address the problems in this congregation, he wants them confirmed to the end. And he's also praying for them. That's where we start with people that we care about and love when they're facing problems. We fight the battle first on our knees. Why would that be the case? Because God can do far more about it than we can. Right. Maybe there are people in your life. Paul's doing this for the church. Corinth loves them. Maybe there's a child or grandchild or friend or somebody that's going through a difficult time. They're not all they should be in Christ. They were raised better. They know better. You wish they were living right. And we think of all the ways that we would like to fix it. But what if you didn't skip a prayer time for that individual? Always, every time, every time you pray, God, bring them back to the Lord. Every time you prayed, God, I hope they will get back to their roots and what they remember. Every time you pray, God, thank you for the little things that they are doing right. They've got their family in order, but that job is just really taking them away from the Lord. What if every time you approach God, you didn't forget them? Before Paul takes off with any of the solutions, he says, every time I pray, I thank God for the Corinthians. And I want you to remember that. And then not only pray for them, but then tell them that you have. Hey, you're in my prayers. I want you to come home. Hey, you're in my prayers. You're doing the best that you can, but I've been thinking about you. You think in the way the first century letters were composed is that Paul would write these letters and they'd be given to a helper, a spokesman, Timothy or Titus, and then it'd be read before the entire congregation. Imagine sitting in the Corinthian church. You're fighting, you're fussing, all of these things are going on. You're divided over preachers. And then Timothy or Titus or Apollo, somebody stands up to read this letter and you hear these words. You've been called. You're a saint. And I'm praying and thanking God for you. Kind of softens the blow as Paul's about to lay into them pretty heavily on some things that they got wrong. But the first thing he starts off with is you are doing some things right. They were still God's people, even though they were living in a reckless way. In some ways, they had not just been cast away. They were still the church of God in Corinth. But Paul was writing to them to straighten up their act. Notice that he says in verse five. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of our Lord, what Jesus Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. That's verse 7. So what do we know about the Corinthian church just based on that statement alone? Verses 5 through 7. What kind of church was this spiritually speaking? A church that ought to know better, that's for sure. What else? They're active and growing, that's for sure. What else? What does he say about their giftedness? They had some special gifts. You could go a step further. They had every gift. You came behind in no gift. If there was a spiritual gift that could be possessed in the first century church, the Corinthian church had it. They were growing. But this should give us pause. Because it means that just because a church is filled with talented people, and just because a church may be growing, doesn't mean that the church is doing what God wants it to do. 
The Corinthian church from the outside looking in is the kind of church that if they had Facebook in the first century and somebody says like they do today, I'm going out of town. Do you know of a faithful church in and around Achaia? People would have said, go to the Corinthian church. Those guys can speak in different languages. They have to get the prophecy. They have different preachers. They're a gifted congregation. But we've got the book of first Corinthians and we know better, right? And so on one hand, they're gifted. They're special. But that in and of itself doesn't mean that they're being who they should be. In Christianity, talent matters. Every one of us has talent. But Christianity is not a talent show. There's only one star in Christianity, and that's Jesus Christ. And so just because they had all of these gifts, Paul praises them for it, and it's a positive thing. But even all of the gifts in the world couldn't keep them from the problems that every individual congregation will face. It didn't remove the barriers that they still had to overcome. They still had to deal with these issues. They came behind in no gift. Paul never wrote to a church more gifted than the Corinthians. And yet they were a church loaded down with problems. And so it says to us that if we're going to be God's people, there will be occasional problems in congregations even today. Doesn't mean that that's necessarily a bad thing as long as we're working to solve those problems and be the people that God wants us to be. But the Corinthians were not immune from those things, even though they came behind in no gift. Notice he says, in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. And they were lacking in no gift. In verse nine, he will sustain you to the end. That's verse eight. He will sustain you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they had all of these gifts and talents, and Paul highlights it so that they might recognize it. Jesus told the parable about the talents in Matthew 25. You remember that? And talents in Matthew 25 is about measures of money. And there was the five-talent man, and then who else? The next man had how many? Two. And then the last guy had one. There was no zero-talent man, was there? The one-talent man was punished for pretending to be the zero-talent man, but he had something. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you have some pretty good things. Now use them. They should have known better. They should have been equipped to do what God would have them to do. Each one of us has something to contribute, and God wants us to put it in, to do our part, to help the cause of Christ move forward. They were enriched in every way. Let's close out verse 9, and then how much time left? I guess they said I could go as long as I want. How much more can you all take? All right. Well, I think we maybe have five or ten minutes left. Is that about right? Two bells. Okay, I didn't hear one yet. So verse nine, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. So he tells them that they'll be held guiltless in the day of our Lord. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. There's this joint participation in this fellowship that they enjoy because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. The fellowship that we ultimately have is with God and with his son. What does fellowship mean? Communion, yep, that's communion. What is fellowship? Taking part in something together. It's a joint partnership. So when we obey the gospel, we come into fellowship with each other, but we most importantly come into fellowship with the triune God, the Godhead. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and notice verse 3. 1 John 1 and verse 3. John is saying the same thing that Paul says about fellowship and the importance of it. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you, too, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, or truly, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And in first Corinthians one and verse nine, Paul says we have fellowship with God. That's who our fellowship is primarily with. 
Again, why is Paul starting out by reminding them that you're called, that God's going to establish you, that you have fellowship with God? Why is all of that important as he starts writing this letter to a church that's filled with problems? Why do they need to be reminded that they have fellowship with God? That makes them who they are. But also, if you're going to be on God's team, you can't keep acting the way that you've been behaving. God's not going to tolerate it. You can't continue to have this joint participation with God while you're fighting with each other, while you're divided, while you're practicing immorality. God's going to hold you accountable. Your fellowship is with God. And so you need to behave that way. And we should think about it more that way, not just our fellowship with each other, but ultimately our fellowship is with God. The way that we respond to each other is a reflection of that. But our fellowship, our joint participation, when somebody obeys the gospel, they become a part of God's family here on earth. But there's also been a cosmic shift. Now, God writes their name down on the roll book in heaven. And God says, you and I are on the same team. And when a person says, you know what, I'm just not going to come to worship service anymore. I'm not going. It's not just, well, they've been forsaking the assembly. They're disrupting their fellowship with God. When a person says, "Okay, I'm a Christian, but I'll just say whatever comes to my mind. If I want to curse, if I get mad, I'll just do that. I'll do whatever I want. That person's disrupting their fellowship with God. When we don't forgive, when we're not kind to each other, Paul is driving at this point. You all are in jeopardy of disrupting your relationship with God, and I don't want you to do that. And so take heed to the things that I'm going to say to you. Let's read verse 10 down through verse 17. We won't be able to unpack all of this, but... We'll start today. Now, Paul has gone through the praise, the greeting and the thanksgiving. And now he'll get to the first problem. You can block off the book of first Corinthians this way. Chapters one through four are about their problems being divided over preachers. That's the first four chapters. Paul does not change focus. So throughout the first four chapters, he'll say it in various ways and through various lenses. But his main focus throughout the first four chapters is you all need to be cured of the disease of preacheritis. They're focused on who's their favorite preacher and who baptized me and who's better than this person. And Paul spends four chapters telling them none of that matters. Look at verses 10 down through verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree or that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, that would be Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? By the way, parenthetically, what's the answer to verse 13? Were they baptized in Paul's name? Crucified by Paul? Crucified? Was Paul crucified for them? Who did all of that for him? You could just draw an arrow back up to the first nine verses. That's why he laid the foundation the way that he did. So when these questions start to be driven to the Corinthians, hey, what are you guys doing? You're in fellowship with God. You're called to be saints. You're in God's family. They'd be able to figure it out. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also. And beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be emptied of his power. Okay, let's begin with verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers. The old King James has, I believe, I beseech you, right? I'm begging you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree or speak the same things and that there be no divisions among you. 
First Corinthians chapter one and verse 10 can be used to show that there are problems with people being in various groups, uh, denominationalism and groups over here and that groups over there. Jesus never wanted that. And John 17, Jesus, people that believe on him through the apostles words might be united. John 17, 20 through 21. But in first Corinthians one and verse 10, Paul is not talking about in this context, people in other groups. He's actually talking to the church of Christ. He's talking to the church of God at Corinth. And he's saying, I want you all to agree and speak the same thing and have no divisions among you. Be joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, we all come from different backgrounds and from different places and there are different age groups is what arguing for what he's arguing for in chapter one and verse 10. Is it possible? Can we all agree together? Can we speak the same thing? Everybody go this way. Yes, right? Paul can. Now, here's the other question. Is that easy? No, right? You've got your ideas sometimes on how you want things to be done, and somebody else says, you know what? I think it should be done this way. Well, how do you figure that out? How do we get on the same page, even though we sometimes have different ideas about things? And I'm not talking about doctrinal matters, but sometimes there are different areas of judgment where we would rather do things different. How do we get on the same page so that we don't violate what Paul's pleading for in verse 10? God's word. And the way God has structured congregations is you have the plurality of elders, right? And so in a local congregation, the elders in those areas of judgment, what time are we going to start worship? Some people would probably prefer us to start at 11 o'clock, right? So they. But the elders have said we're going to start at 930. The elders in the local congregation decide that and we continue to point back to the word of God. And that's why Paul says, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do what Jesus wants you to do, and then you'll be pleasing to him. Look at the word of God and allow that to be the thing on which you unite. They're divided. They're in different groups and different camps. And Paul's saying, I'm begging you that it not be that way. Be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul received a report from Chloe in verse 11 that there was arguing among them. And then in verse 12, they were divided about preachers. We know a lot about Paul. Who was Apollos? Well, I guess we'll save it for next time. We'll save it for next time. We'll start in verse 12 next time. Thanks for a good Bible class as we begin the book of 1 Corinthians. Read the book of 1 Corinthians or at least try to read the first two or three chapters and we'll pick up in chapter. Looking forward to our study together. Order.